So uh, Delta Green is, uh, in 1928, um, the U.S. Marines were called into a small town called Innsmouth, Massachusetts, and discovered, much to their chagrin, that it wasn't a cult of bootleggers. It was a bunch of creatures that existed and crossbred with men that lived at the bottom of the sea. What would happen in the U.S. federal government if that actually happened? Howdy, friends. Craig here. Uh, This is a really fun episode. I got to sit down with Dennis Detwiller uh, from Arc uh, Dream Publishing. These are the guys that uh, bring you uh, the Delta Green role-playing game. Um, I've had a lot of people uh, on the show for this, for our Insider Insights, and it's possible that Dennis has the most geek street cred of any of my guests so far. He has been involved with so many things, uh, probably most notably Magic the Gathering. Um, And uh, we focus a lot on Delta Green. So for those of you not familiar with it, Delta Green is a role-playing game, one that uh, I've heard so many things, good things about. I've bought it. I haven't run it yet. It is a fascinating game uh, and a very interesting premise. So I spend time talking about Dennis's career, um, how he um, kind of got to where he is now as an independent uh, game producer. We walk through Dennis's career from uh, drawing for DC and Marvel to illustrating and designing Magic the Gathering, heading up various software design companies, and then finally breaking away and creating with his partners their own role-playing game, one that has been hugely successful. Stick around to the end. Dennis and I talk about some of the controversies that are in the role-playing community. And uh, as always, Dennis's uh, opinions are very straightforward and unapologetic. So sit back as I try to decipher Dennis from Arc Dream Publishing. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the Third Floor and the Tabletop Talk Broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. Now, today we're talking to Dennis Detwiller, the artist and designer best known for his work on Magic the Gathering and the Delta Green RPG. Now, since I came back into RPGs, uh, thanks to COVID, uh, Delta Green is probably the single game that I'm consistently having recommended to me. Some of the people I've connected with in the industry whose opinions I trust on RPGs Delta Green is always part of the conversation, so I knew I needed to track Dennis down. And this is before I realized that he's probably got the most geek cred of anybody that's been on the show. <laughs> so I've been really looking forward to this. Um, I got the uh, book set. Um, I've been ripping through it. I've yet to run Delta Green, um, but uh, this is not going to be a five-hour show, but I could, I've could. i got so many questions for Dennis, it could be. So let's start off with something simple. Dennis, welcome to the third floor. Hey, how are you doing? It's good to see good, you, Good, my friend. It's good to see you. So um, usually what I like to do um, is kind of find out um, how it all started. So long ago, um, there was a day where you had no idea that dice existed. You'd never seen a <laughs> card. You didn't know that people sat at tables and uh, played games. So what was your first exposure to gaming? Uh, well, I, I was lucky enough to grow up uh, in the New York City area. Um, and so my gaming store, the store that 
that that represents gaming to me is a place that is usually famous called the complete strategist and that's spell spell very strangely the place is amazing yeah <laughs> so that was my introduction to gaming was walking through the store of the complete strategist and buying wow. uh god what was it uh gamma world's first oh, edition great I game think for $9 or whatever the box set costs. Um, and, you know, I didn't play then. That was the first. So that was like when I was 11 or 12. Right. And then uh, when I was 12 or 13, I fell in with a group of Boy Scouts who played D&D on Saturdays. I just started playing D&D with them. Strangely enough, I still play D&D with them every Get Sunday. Here. Yeah, 40 years, 35 years later. Uh, I'm still the DM. I run their games. Uh, same group, same time, same kind of feel. And it's great. I love it. Um, wow. So that's kind of where it began for me, uh, 84, 85. Uh, and then very quickly thereafter, I wandered into a bookshop in New Hampshire and found Masks of Neurothotep, and that was it for me. I was like, <laughs> this is it. So. so so that's you as far as RPGs. Now, is there other things that you've gotten involved with? Like, do you play board games at all? Or uh, Well, no. Uh, when I started out, I really wanted to be a comic book artist. So, okay. you know, I grew up in New York. Um, I did a lot of work for the big two there, DC and Marvel. Yep. Um, you know, I went to college at a, a kind of a pretty famous college for art called School of Visual Arts in New York. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, that's cool. So, yeah, so I, you know, I was really obsessed with that. That was my primary obsession. Gaming was almost a secondary thing. Uh, and then uh, in the late, you know, the early 90s, I was trying to break into Marvel full time. And all the Marvel guys were like, why are you trying to break into here? It's like trying to break into like Treblinka. It's like yeah, terrible you're trying to break time. into a death camp. It's it's gonna be a terrible time to get into the industry then. Yeah, that's that's when I kind of wandered into uh, Magic the Gathering and other stuff. So that worked really well for me. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Tons of obsession with um, comic books, graphic novels, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, obviously as a kid, um, I mean, it was about the same age that I found D&D as well, right? Mm -hmm. And then from there, it was Star Frontiers, Gamma World, uh, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Um, but what do you think it was? Was it just because your friends were playing it and that's what you guys did together? Or was there something about it that really, that really hooked you, obviously? Uh, the, the, the single moment I recall being interested in making worlds and coming up with concepts was uh, at, you know, those horrible book fairs the schools used to have. They kind yeah. of, you know, in the library. They, yeah. So I bought, a, I bought a copy of The Hobbit, I think, when I was maybe six or seven. And uh, it has that awesome map in, in the front of The Hobbit with the, the Lonely Mountain and the finger. And yep. I was like, I was like, I'm going to make my own map was my first thought. So I, re I recalled all that when I was like 12 and 13 in D&D. I was like, that just woke that up again where I was like, I can just go do this. It can be anything. Yeah. Um, I love that feeling. So. So and sometimes um, uh, a lot of my listeners are younger than me, younger than you mm -hmm. and I. Um, and they don't quite understand what it was like to find a role playing game and kind of figure it out because there's nothing like it. Right. And there was no yeah. Internet. There was no message oh, yeah. boards. So yeah. do you can you remember back kind of the fumbling process that you 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 and the Boy yeah. Scout went through? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we'd argue about stuff, you know, we'd write into uh, Dragon Magazine. Uh, I think <laughs> we, we've had letters published in Dragon Magazine in the oh, 80s, and, you know, uh, about Ravenloft or something like that, <laughs> arguing about the levitation in the center of the tower in Ravenloft. Um, you know, so it, it was a very different process back then. But, I, you know, as far as discovery goes, I remember um, digging through uh, Dragon Magazine and going yeah. to the back and finding Call of Cthulhu 
in the back of Dragon Man and ordering it. You know, I mailed in the Sazy and a, you know, and <laughs> waiting a month to get a box that was all beaten up, but it was awesome. You know, I, I love that. So. Yeah, I remember Dragon Magazine. That was a that was a big deal too. I, yeah, I remember uh, it was a Walden Books that was in the town where I grew up, and that was the big thing. Was going there, I'd get uh, yep. the new the newest comics, and I would make sure I got my copy of Dragon Magazine. Yeah, it was always um, amazing. Yeah, yeah, and, and if I remember, and of course, this is one of those things, Dennis, where you go back and you. I, I fear that if I went back and looked at those Dragon magazines, I would realize that they were terrible. But in my mind, I remember them being great. They're not. I I have them. They're yeah. they're still fantastic. I mean, you go through them, and some are hit and miss. You know, there's there's stuff in there. It's like, eh, this is kind of cheesy. Or, but there's so much good stuff in there, especially That's when cool. they started to get to a multi game company right. when they were doing Marvel and Star Frontiers, and every issue of Dragon had just one to three really just great things in it. You know, so I love that's, those. That's awesome. So, guys, the main reason that uh, we do this insider series is that I try to talk to people that are developers, designers, artists. Turns out Dennis is all of these things and in, industry insiders. And, and I like to get an idea of kind of their creative process and really how do they approach their work. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk about kind of the next phase for Dennis, which is instead of being a consumer um, of these games, when did he become a producer? So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzooks sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzoopsgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. So you guys got to sit through Dennis and I remembering uh, <laughs> like simpatico, uh, very similar stories as far as uh, growing up and and discovering these games and playing these games. And um, what I want to do, though, is I want to kind of learn, Dennis, from you. Um, so you uh, go to school for art, right? Yeah. Um, and if I understand things correctly, um, you did some ink work and stuff for the for the big two. Um, yeah. Was that before or after college or during college? Uh, it was a little bit before college, all during college, and then a little bit after college. Gotcha. So, yeah. And is that something that you enjoy doing or you're glad you escaped or? Yeah, no, I mean, um, I very quickly learned uh, there was a living could not be made 
drawing comic books in the nineties in New York city. Um, and I lived in the city, so it was wildly expensive. Um, so I got into other things and, you know, those other things paid off. So I really kind of lucked out. So what was next? So you decide, all right, I'm going to get out of, I'm, I'm going to stop um, doing uh, com- comic work. What was next? Uh, well, I was doing uh, book covers. So like one-off paint, painted book covers for like, you know, cheesy science fiction novels and stuff like that. And they, they paid okay. Um, and then I discovered a, a very strange fan magazine for Call of Cthulhu called The Unspeakable Oath um in new brunswick new jersey i was with my girlfriend at the time i went into a store and there was this amazingly little little magazine for call cthulhu and i was like this is it this is amazing (laughs) and uh, i just i loved it it was just so carefully put together and so well thought out and i wrote the guy who was the editor and he was like oh yeah just do art for us so (laughs) i just started doing that so interesting I i was john tynes Get out. No kidding. Delta Green. Yeah. yeah. So roughly how old were you at that point? Uh, I guess I was 19 or 20. Oh, wow. You were young. Holy cow. Yeah. All right. So now you've migrated over. You're now doing uh, art for for that for that magazine. Was that a full time gig for you? We still doing book covers on the side. No, I was I was doing all this other stuff. Basically everything I could to keep the lights on. So three to five painting, three to five big paintings a year. Uh, and then lots of little clip art and, you know, anything I could get the work from. I had a lot of really good teachers in college who were very, uh, friendly and very outgoing and kind of kept me, anything they didn't want to do would fall down the rungs to me. Oh, I, you know, I can't do this quarter page illustration. I got a kid, give it to him and pay him $75 or I do 10 or 12 of those a month. Sure. Um, sure. And, you know, so. So I'm going to ask a stupid question because I don't know the answer to this. Um, I know exactly what kind of book covers you're talking about, right? Because I, I would, I, I was a voracious reader um, of those terrible books. Um, like, did you literally? Well, like, what? Me- I guess what medium did you use? So uh, were, usually, were they literally painted? Yeah, it's usually gouache or acrylic. Got um, it. And this is this is so old. This is 1991 or 92. Digital art in any form didn't really right. exist very much you could do simple pixelated things but this was this was all like nightmarish you know sketch it on a piece of illustration board fix it and then you know go in do layers and scumble and glaze and all this nightmare yeah and then you just send that original art over to them and uh yeah and never see it again and never see it again (laughs) (laughs) all right so you're working on the magazine the magazine was devoted to call of cthulhu Yes. Um, you meet somebody who is obviously going to be a part of your life uh, going yeah. forward. Um, what's next? Um, as is, are you still with the magazine, and then something pops, or no? I um I uh, left New York. I just decided um, I can't live here anymore. It's way too expensive. Uh, yeah. I can't live on what I want to do. I can barely make ends meet every month, even in a good month. Yeah. Um, so I called John and John was in, uh, Columbia, Missouri. Okay. So, so like the middle of nowhere and I'd never been really anywhere. So I said, you know, I'm going to come out to Columbia and we'll just do the oath full time. And, and I can live there. Like if I save for two months, I can live in Columbia for two years. Right. Um, and you know, you could rent an 1800 square foot, you know, civil war house basically for the amount I paid for sharing a bunk in a right. thousand square foot apartment <laughs> um, and, and eat like a King, you know, go right. out every night. <laughs> no problem. Uh, so I did that and I kept my New York jobs 
you know, I did my illustrations in New York and I lived in Columbia with John and that's where kind of Delta green and all that kind of stuff kind of started to ferment in the house. Uh, it was all these really cool people, Blair Reynolds, the illustrator, John Tynes, Brian Appleton, John Crow, uh, wow. these amazing creatives for call of Cthulhu. Um, and we just started making really fun stuff and, and really kind of everybody had their section and knew what knew where to put their mark and it all worked out. Now, um, in our next segment, Dennis, I want to get into detail with Delta Green because it's, sure. it's pretty amazing. But before we do that, um, it's a big part of the story that we're telling right now. Yeah. So um, you guys. Where does De- where does the original premise come from? You guys are playing Call of Cthulhu and then something happens or John, John Tynes um, uh, was sick of of us goofing off and call Cthulhu. He was sick. <laughs> he, you know, in all honesty, I, I believe the game was Mask of Neural Fotap and like the ninth character had died. <laughs> and, and we were like recruiting waiters and things like, come fight the cult of Neural Fotap, waiter. And the waiter would be like, sure. And we make up some stupid name for him and then he'd die. Uh, and John was like, we need to come up with a solution to this where it's like, you know, just straight up the government has an agency or something. And he went off and wrote this scenario uh, called Convergence, which was just awesome, huh. uh, which created the idea of Delta Green and then just the high levels. Uh, none of the history, none of the background, none of the real kind of depths of it. But on, at a right. high level, it was an amazing snapshot of, oh, oh, my God, it should be that. And, um, huh. you know, it was really quick to be noticed by us. We were just like, that's it. So. So, so the original premise was, is we need, we need a, we need a player character factory. We yes. need a- <laughs> yeah, where, where it makes sense and, it, right. and it, it doesn't break the immersion of the game. You know, um, it, it was so disruptive previously, like who the hell are we going to recruit now? Every, yeah. all the handlers are dead. All the, you know, all the guys who drove the, the we, the limousine driver got eaten. Like who was going to, uh, and you know, with Delta green, it's like the guy flies in on the next flight because, yeah, you, 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 you call the conspiracy and they're like, oh, crap, we got to we got to cover this hole. So. All right. So he puts that out in front of you and you're like, you guys are like, holy crap, this is something more than just a solution for the fact that we're bad at playing Call of Cthulhu, <laughs> yeah, keeping, yeah. keeping our friends alive. Um, yeah. So. Like, did you guys together say, you know, we need to, we need to get this out there like this. This needs to get off our table and get to other tables. Yeah. Yeah. There was a very conscious effort to do that. But um, something happened in between the initial pitch and oh, okay. kind of the realization. And that was um, me and John became involved with Wizards of the Coast Got it. Um, in, in that same time period when we were in Missouri. We were good friends with Peter Atkinson. Uh, Lisa Stevens, Jesper Beerfor is the original art director yep. for Magic the Gathering. Um, and uh, John got hired by Wizards to come out to Seattle in the very early hiring run. And I was hired by Jesper to do Magic cards um, at, at that same time. And I painted my first Magic cards in Missouri uh, and, and then, you know, went to uh, Origins, the first show that had Magic <laughs> and saw it like explode. And after that point, after they sold out a million dollar print run in, in an hour or two hours, uh, there was just a general call for the talented friends of wizards come out to Seattle. There's work for you. So Interesting. we all just hauled ass all the pagans packed up and went to Seattle, Washington in 92 or 93. I don't yeah. even remember anymore. Um, and got a house there before the city really got big. It was a tiny little burg at the time, and it was just a great place. Had a really fun time. 
I bet. And, you know, for a lot of our listeners, uh, some of them remember these times, I, I being one of them, because I remember um, getting my beta cards and, and right. figuring out this game. And, and I remember playing it for the first time going, like, holy shit, like, like, this is this is something else. Like I could yeah. tell it was something else. Now, I never would have predicted, let, you know, what would happen at Origins that year, let alone that we would still be sitting here as old men and the game's, <laughs> yes. big, the game's bigger now than it was ever. Like that's what's astounding. I, I, I know. I know. It's, it's like, I was explaining, I was trying to explain the feeling of my feeling of it to someone uh, a couple months ago. And it's like, if you had a song in high school that you and your friends sang, only you and your friends, no one else knew it. And then you went to Tel Aviv and the people were singing it in the street. And if you went up and started singing it to them, they'd be like, my friend, come with me. Yeah. We'll buy yeah. like. I literally landed in Japan once. Uh, they lost my luggage. I had nothing. I had my passport in like $60. Went to a magic shop. The guy adopted me. He was like, yeah. greater werewolf. Get with her. <laughs> and like literally, you know, I woke up like five days later, fully fed and happy. And, you know, and this something? guy took care of me. So yeah. it's, it's an incredible culture and the people are awesome. And uh, I'm so lucky to be involved in it in any way. Yeah. And I mean, back then, too, this is, again, something that a lot of people don't know um, or, or don't realize is nobody knew who the hell Wizards of the Coast was. Oh, oh yeah. No, I mean, we weren't anybody. Yeah. And, and the rumor is and I never knew I've never had this confirmed, but supposedly Garfield had designed Magic the Gathering to get the money to make one of his board game dreams, uh, which I, was Robo the robot game. Robot yeah, Rally. Thank Robo you. Rally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That, that's, that's kind of true. Uh, a Robo Rally was an obsession of Richard and Richard. Yeah. Richard. So I, above all, what I want to state is Richard Garfield, Peter Atkins, Jesper Beerfors are just fantastic people. That's great. They're, they're all great people. They're all still great people. John Tynes, you know, we're still friends with all these people. Um, and that's, that's a testament right there. I mean, it's been, 28 years or whatever. Long time. Uh, Yeah. And they're, you know, they're just good people. Um, But besides that, Richard is wholly obsessed with games. Whenever, you know, the last time I spoke with him was maybe 2015 when I was at Warner brothers uh, talking about a project and uh, he's, you know, I'm just doing these six games at once, you know, so he hasn't changed at all. Uh, And, and uh, Peter is now like a full-time D and D player. Isn't he that likes, something? Yeah. So it's it's a great life, you know. That is great. And of course, what ends up happening is Wizards of the Coast ends up, you know, getting D&D. Um, oh, yeah. And purchase, yeah. Purchasing it from TSR. Um, and it's my understanding that people within Wizards of the Coast, obviously it was magic that made Wizards of the Coast, Wizards of the Coast. But yeah. I, I've also under, I have heard that they were all RPGers too. So oh, as soon oh, yeah. as TSR like became a reality, they went after it voraciously. Is that what happened? Yeah, everybody there, you know, was into RPGs. Uh, Vampire, D&D, uh, Peter is a huge D&D head. Yeah. Um, and uh, he got, you know, some of the best game designers in the world to look at. Uh, John Tweet, uh, who's a good friend of Pagan. Uh, he did Ars Magica and then, you know, all yeah. these other great games. He's, you know, it was just an incredible run. Getting D&D, saving D&D, really. This is the oh, important yeah. part, you know. It was going off a cliff. It was, you know, not in a good place not because of the people running it, but just kind of the financial situation and what had gone on before. Yep. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a great place in time to be and totally just bizarre that I was involved in it at all. It feels very <laughs> weird. So, so what's the transition now? So you decide I've had enough of wizards. I'm tired of magic. 
Uh, well, no, the, the, what happened was uh, Jesper Mirfors, the art director, wrote uh, what, what I like to term the greatest artist, pro artist contract in the history of all contracts for any piece of freelance art. Um, so I, I am still paid for my <laughs> Wizards of the Coast work. No kidding. So whenever they reprint Flood or, you know, Goblin Rock Sled or Squire or something, wow. I'll get a check from Rhode Island for royalties. And that's, that's because Jesper went out of his way to, to kind of right the wrongs of the standard, you know, work for hire agreement that usually comes with this stuff. And, you know, it led to some really successful artists like Hanson Maddox and yeah. making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in royalties. Um, so that, that was great. Um, and that really changed my life. But of course, Hasbro kind of showed up and, and bought the company and, and, as they are want to do, they wanted to kind of stop doing that. So the future projects no longer, you know, included those clauses. And I can understand that. Yep. Uh, so, you know, I was more than happy to kind of go, well, okay, I'm, I'm getting married. We're heading out of town. So at that point in, in about 2000, 2001, I become really interested in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, which was a sleepy little town with no big downtown that had kind of fallen on hard times. And they were building condos downtown with, uh, it was literally a handshake deal, a 1% mortgage, and you needed no, like you could literally just show up and sign up and get a condo. Just walk in. Yeah. So me and my wife did that pre-construction and we, I moved up there in 2000, 2001, um, and then kind of just drifted into video games. Interesting. Okay. And how you say drifted in, like, you know, like how do you drift into video games? Well, uh, <laughs> it's a weird story. I was in a, uh, I was in a, one of the Starbucks drawing the Hulk. I think okay. for, for a work for hire gig for um, a Marvel, not a subsidiary, but like a, a toy, like a licensee. Yeah. I was basically doing like, here's the back of an action figure thing of the Hulk going raw. And uh, this guy who I didn't know was waiting in line and watching me draw this on the table. Cause I lived in a little condo. I didn't really have an art studio. Um, and he said, uh, what are you doing that for fun? And I said, no, I'm doing it for money. Like I was, <laughs> I was like offended. And he was like, he was like, Oh, uh, we're making a Hulk video game. And I was like, Oh, neat. Uh, where? And he said, Oh, down a radical, this radical entertainment, pretty large company at the time, uh, down block. Uh, you should come in and, and talk. We're looking for an art director. So, uh, and I said, Oh yeah, I used to work at Marvel. He was like, you should definitely come in, you know, like, right. So I, I went in the next day and, and got the job, uh, like in a go, just kind of went in and went, Oh yeah, I did this and did this and did this. And then about a, a three weeks later, I'm doing art direction stuff. And, and I had a design note about combat and they were like, you can do game design. I was like, Oh yeah, I worked on the magic the gathering. They're like, what? <laughs> so, uh, and I, I hadn't really considered that that might be vaguely important. Um, so at that point they're like, okay, you're a game designer now. So go sit over there. Um, so I did that. Um, so I, I'd be curious, and it's like, um, you know, I, I, it, there's some obvious overlays, right, between the two, uh, but it's not perfect either. So, no. I mean, was that a huge transition for you mentally as a designer to say, no, uh, how so? So what no, was the no. same? Um, well, I mean, all of this is holistic. It's whenever or whenever, I, or for me, it's holistic, I should say. Some people are very in their lane and, I've never been that guy. You can ask times. Uh, I'm the guy who draws the gray alien and then writes the stats for the gray alien. 
to match the drawing. Right. And then goes back and revises the drawing because it doesn't feel right. And, you know, I'm that guy, uh, the annoying guy. Um, so, so I've never had any problem jumping between, uh, avocations because they're all the same thing to me. Uh Um, they all feel very similar in in creation. So, uh, well, I think the reason I can produce uh, a lot of work is when I can't write, I draw, when I can't draw, I design, when I can't design, I write, and it just goes in a big loop and I jump back and forth all the time, you know? Right. And, and I would imagine one influences the other. You find inspiration, oh, yeah. you find in, inspiration here that ends up applying there. And yeah, that, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. And I would imagine, too, that helps with burnout. Yeah, I don't I I I can't really say I've ever experienced burnout. Wow. Um, I, I really I and the last project I've been working on, which we'll probably talk about later, is Delta Green Impossible Landscapes, yeah. which is a 360 some odd page fully illustrated by me, King Yellow book. And it is the most complicated, daunting, scary thing I've ever done. And even now I, I can still do some more for it than I'm probably wow. going to. So that's cool. So you're in, you're in the video game industry, mm-hmm. um, uh, exercising muscles that you've had, I would imagine learning new skills. Um, yeah, tons. Yeah. It, but, but that's not an easy business to be in. No, no, it's very so, stressful. Did that catch up to you? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so just a real quick summary. Uh, I did radical entertainment for five years. Uh, I created an IP from the ground up with my partner, Eric Holmes, uh, that IP is prototype uh, for for Activision. We created the whole concept, designed the game, Wow, everything soup to nuts and sold, you know, three to 5 million copies of that. It was a big hit. They did a sequel. Uh, But I left, went into mobile because I could see mobile was starting to take off in about 2010. Uh, worked at a place called Hothead with um, uh, Ron Gilbert, who did uh, Monkey Island and oh wow, okay, other stuff like that. He was my boss, and he really yeah. was fun fun working with him. Then I moved to San Francisco, uh, ran uh, a place called Play First. Then Nickelodeon Studios as the design director. Then Warner Brothers as the design director. Um, and then in my fifteenth year in video games, I said this is crazy. I can't really do this very much anymore. Um, and called it a wrap and moved up here. So interesting. Interesting. So that brought you back up to Canada at that yeah. point. Yeah. Um, now, did you have a plan or you just say peace out and I'm just going to figure it out or, uh, I had, I had a plan. Um, so the last job I was at was at a wonderful place called Hairbrain schemes. Uh, so, um, uh, I created a game uh, called Necropolis for them and uh, with, with a bunch of other really talented people. Uh, they do Shadowrun, the video game. They do yep. Mech Warrior. Um, and uh, while we were there, I put, uh, me and Shane Ivey put Delta Green up on Kickstarter. And uh, that, that just exploded into something I never, ever considered um, possible. And at that point, I was like, why am I, why would I not just be doing this full time? Gotcha. Um, there's money here and yep. people love the work. So I, I should give this all my attention. And, and that was the freestanding Delta green that went yes. up on Kickstarter. So yeah. now, now I'm going to force you to go backwards a little bit with me. Um, so uh, we've got Delta green is the solution to a problem. You guys love yeah. it. You play it. No, we need to do something else with it. Dennis vanishes, goes, makes video games uh, for a period of time. When does Delta green come back as a chaosm supplement? I, so, so 1996, 1997, me and John Tynes working, uh, John was working full-time at Wizards. I was doing art for Wizards. Uh, me, him, uh, and a guy named Adam Scott Clancy, 
uh, kind of sat down and hashed out the history, background, secrets of De- the original Delta Green book. And that took, you know, two years, something like that. It was a lot of work and a lot yeah. of writing and a lot of art. And um, uh, we released it and it, it was received wonderfully. People loved it, um, but it was very difficult to make a living at this stuff back then because it was a three-tier distribution. You'd send your books away. Three months later, sometimes you get a third of what you wrote. And yeah. Sometimes they never pay you at all. Yeah. Um, so we had these hugely highly rated things that won the Origins Award, best game of the year, blah, blah, blah. And we were living like on McDonald's hamburgers, barely getting by. Right. Um, so that was tough. Uh, so I did that. And then we did Delta Green Countdown directly thereafter, which was a, a 490 page Delta Green new book, uh, which was took years. And, um, you know, imagine whatever you're doing now, no computers, no real layout. Yeah. It's all by hand. And kind of, it was a nightmare. Um, and we got paid almost absolutely nothing for that. Like, one of the distributors actually stole most of our stock sold it and never paid us. Um, so I, you know, I kind of left that all behind at that point. Like I can't make a living at this and I need to kind of be alive to make the arts. Well, and I would imagine too, it's a bit heartbreaking, right? Because I mean, it's, it's not like you're selling a bunch of widgets here. These are, this is something you've put your heart and soul into. Yeah. Yeah. We, we loved making it and and everybody involved really believed in it. And, uh, it's hard to not, not get that payback, you know? Yeah. All right. So, at what point do you guys make the decision that um, you're going to, you're going to make it its own thing, right? So you're, you're going to, it's not going to be a supplement anymore. And, and I guess my first question is, is what drove that? So was it a situation where you felt you outgrew um, Call of Cthulhu or did you always kind of know it was going to be its own thing? We like, you know, we like Call of Cthulhu. We still like Chaos and we still get along with them. Um, uh, their previous owner, uh, Lynn Willis, basically just kind of freed us. Uh, you know, we did, we did, we agreed to put Delta Green in Call of Cthulhu D20 if there was a specific copyright amendment in there that said we owned it outright. And and Chaosium did that. So at that point, we have no choice. We are separated from Chaosium full time. Um, and uh, they do a very specific brand of Call of Cthulhu, which is, you know, cool and fine and adventurous and more Indiana Jones than we would like. Right. Um, we're much more about the human cost <laughs> of, of this stuff uh, than kind of, you know, the, you know, literally Indiana Jones stuff. I love that stuff. Yep. Mask of Neural Thotep is Indiana Jones. Um, you know, and I play it, I love it, but it's just not what I want to build for myself. Right, right. Well, it's not the world that you guys had, had been had been working with at that point. So now the Kickstarter makes sense to a little bit more sense to me at this point, right? Because you're mm-hmm. on your own. You've already been burned. Um, yeah. So I would imagine the idea of let's do this by ourselves yes. is, is very attractive. Kickstarter exists. Yeah. Um, did you guys um, like how difficult was that then to ramp up and get ready for the Kickstarter? And was it, did it take a ton of work? Not, and I don't, I don't mean producing what you're going to produce, but, you know, making that transition of, you know, we're doing this by ourselves. We're going to produce this by ourselves. We're going to put it out by ourselves. Yeah, no, no. Um, because uh, the scary part is, uh, despite my incredible nightmarish work schedule and video games, like at Warner Brothers, when I say nightmarish work schedule, I want people to understand what I mean. I was doing 70 hour weeks oh, yeah. where, I, where I was on call Sundays and literally no days off. Didn't see my children. And I still wrote 
books. I still illustrated books. I wrote two novels and two source books. Uh, one won the any, you know, so you can, it, it, I, you know, and this sucks. And, and, and I, I hate saying this, but I hear a lot of, I don't have any time to do this. Right. I, I had two kids. I was working 70 hour uh, a week job and I was still drawing and, and writing these books. You can do it too. Um, you just have to really, it, it sucks, but sometimes you have to kind of work really hard at it. Um, so, uh, when we got to Delta green, it was like, if I'm going to be working on this full time, this is no problem at all. This, this yeah. is fun. Yeah. Um, you know, so that was kind of what I was looking forward to was putting a ton of time in. Um, and we have a very strong policy at arc dream, the company that publishes Delta green now, which is, uh, it's done when it's done. There's no schedule. There's no interesting. You know, uh, we we can't like you know, and and the reason we do that is because Delta Green, Delta Green Countdown. I recall the dates where we literally went, okay, I guess that's done. Huh. But uh, but until then, it was never like this will be out in the fall or this will be out next year. It was just kind of like we got another twenty pages to fill. Let's get going. That's interesting. Now, I got to tell you that that is different. Now, part of it might be, well, let me say what I was going to say. That's different than what I've heard from a lot of designers I've had on the show. Um, In fact, I've had some designers tell me and developers tell me that those deadlines are critical for them. Um, And they say if they didn't have that, that they would never finish anything and they would still be doing, you know, adjustments to it. Um, so what you're saying is, is very different from that. Um, yeah, oh yeah. So the irony is, is what you're telling me, what you're saying to me makes more sense. Yeah. So when they, when they were telling me that as a creative person myself, I was like, you know, okay, I guess so. I've never thought about it that way. What you're saying makes more sense to me, but there's, I mean, there's gotta be some pressures, Dennis, to, to, to finish. Right. No. Or is it just, you know, is it just you guys are so driven that we're going to start something, we're going to finish something and and it happens? Well, it's 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 it, we, we've we've cultivated an air of this from the first Delta Green release onward, where we literally just go, we're not done with it yet. We're, we're yeah. working on it. Here's some previews, but we, we're not going to release it until it's perfect. Uh, and people were not turned off by that. People were the opposite people became obsessed when is this coming out you know like uh so all the standard like the customer is always right you should immediately bend over or someone's like this this you said it was due next month and where the hell is it and, and you rush it out to kind of get no i will never ever do that and I, we're great. really we're really upfront about that in our kickstarters where we're just kind of like this is just how we make stuff and if you like the quality you got before the reason that quality exists is because we follow this rule. Um, and a lot of people really like that. So we, we lucked out. We have a very understanding public, I guess. That's great. That's great. But you also set the expectations out of the gate, right? So you're not, yeah. it's not like you're, you're not, you're not mentioning that at the 11th hour when it's due at noon. No, so. no. I mean, there's a minimum line for Delta green. And, and if we do not exceed that line, that book is never coming out. And there are several books in the graveyard that we, no one will ever see because they just don't work for whatever reason. So the last thing I'd be curious to know um, is um, there's a lot of creative people in this world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I think what often what people don't realize is that what's defining between the successful creatives and the people that have real jobs and say they're creative is the work ethic, Um, the ability to everybody's got great ideas. It takes a lot to 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 
create it and finish it. That's yes. a big deal. Oh, I'd, yeah. be, I'd be curious to know, Dennis, because um, you would not be able to have the approach that you just talked to me about without that type of work ethic. When you look back now, um, a, a, as an old man like me, you look back, where do you <laughs> think that comes from? Where do you think that work ethic, that ability to say, I'm going to start it, I'm going to develop it, and I'm going to finish this, where do you think that came from? Well, there's, there's, that's, a good, that's a really good question. There, it, it's twofold, really. There, one, I was told I would never amount to anything artistically by everybody I interacted with throughout high school. Even when I was drawing professionally, I'd go, I just got paid $60 a page to ink this. Like, what do you want? Like, yeah. you know, and they'd, they'd be like, yeah, you're never going to make a living at this. And, you know, um, so that's one, and I, you know, school was an utter waste for me. I, I just, I, I spent the whole time drawing and taking regents exams. So I didn't have to go to classes. I just, right. it. um, and then second is I grew up in a household, a very small household with uh, my uncle who was terminally ill. Um, so he was in his 20s. He from 13 to 20, he had a brain tumor and, and just slowly wasted away and died when I was about 13, 14. And it really kind of taught me about time Yeah, uh, more than anything else. You know, he would constantly wish he had more time to do things, be able to do. all. And I just kind of made it up in my mind that, you know what, I'm going to tell people what I think. I'm going to do what I want and nobody can tell me what to do with my life. Uh, because you know, my uncle Lloyd, he doesn't even have a life anymore. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm not going to waste that. So that was a wonderful, you know, it was, I think I was 13 or 14 and I had that wonderful revelation where I, I'm free to do whatever I want. I just have to be able to stand up to people when they call me on things they think I should not be doing. That's the difference between most people is you get called on it and you fold. Right. And, and I just stopped doing that when I was about 13. And it really led to <laughs> a lot of magical things in my life. Yeah. Like all, these, all these great situations and opportunities all came out of that. Um, Interesting. So. Well, and, and I would imagine uh, it made you stand out when you start encountering all of these other people and start making yeah. these connections. Um, so I'm going to ask a question which you don't have to answer, but I'd be curious to know if there is an answer. Um, when has that burned you? Um, has there ever been a situation when you look back and go, you know what, I, you know, may, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have been such an asshole. Yeah, always. I mean, you know, there's, <laughs> there's, 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 I mean, the, the, you know, the honest truth is it's always bad. It, it always leads to conflict. It always leads to problems, which is kind of uh, the, the, the only reason I do it is because the magic that, that I can kind of get down onto the page, the only place I can find that is by ripping myself free of all those other social contrivances that people call their life, but hate. Right. Oh, we're going to go to this party because they have a two year old and let's all eat canapes and pretend we want to be here. Nobody wants to do that. Um, yeah. You know, so I, you know, being an asshole is kind of, it starts in New York, New York kind of breed, breed, breeds you that way. Sure. Uh, and it's just kind of the further east, uh, the further west you go, the more dramatic it seems to people. But in New York, I assure you, I'm a wholly normal person. Uh, it's nothing that dramatic about me. But yeah, it, it, it definitely can bite you in the ass a lot. Um, I just got to a point where being bitten in the ass no longer really stings. Yeah, and which makes sense to me. I mean, you have to function as a human being, right? And so at some point, you, your armor has to be, has to be clad. But yeah. but I I guess what I'm asking is um is there is there a bridge that you've burned that you that you maybe wish? And I'm not saying you're you go back and go. I would do it different. 
Um, no, 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 but, no. But what kind of regret is there? Or is there something you can think of off the top of your head where, you know what, maybe, maybe that wasn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. My, my, um, so Warner brothers, um, I worked at Warner brothers in their video game. I ran, I was the, the VP for their video game division. Um, so my first day at Warner brothers, first day was going to see a special sneak preview of man of steel but just for me thrown by Warner brothers to get my notes on it before it was released. So I sit in and the first thing they show me is 20 minutes of Mad Max Fury road uncut. So it's, it's the chase wow. sequence with the polecats. None of the storm is CG and it, it is the single most exciting piece of cinema I have ever seen, even to this day. Yeah. And I'm literally shaking at the end of this little 20 minute preview and then Man of Steel comes on and it's the most awful dreck I've ever seen. It's terrible. It's a mystery story where the first 25 minutes is literally the explanation of the mystery. And then the character goes around looking. You're like, we know what happened on Krypton. <laughs> it's all, oh my God. So then I had to give notes to the VPs and, and I did. I told them exactly what I thought front to back. And they're like, this is going to be the biggest movie ever. And I'm like, you are so wrong. And you're... <laughs> you're really not going to be very happy about it. And, um, yeah. and I, I got burned on that like a dozen times. I got cut out of meetings and all this kind of stuff that I, I really wanted to be in yep. because, because I ran my mouth in front of a bunch of MBAs who knew nothing about creatives, but I will say they were idiots and you're right. <laughs> um, they literally said, I said, that Mad Max stuff was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And they, they literally said, we only make those Mad Max movies so that George will make more penguin films. Yeah. That's a not it's a non-issue that movie. It's not going to do anything. And that's And I was like you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. so so anyway, yeah, that was a direct that was my first day. I literally went <laughs> Your guys projects suck. I'm awesome. Let's move on. And I was a total <laughs> dick and and I shouldn't have handled it that way at all. Right. Right. Um I, you know, even if I believe I'm still right. <laughs> well, yeah, e even if it was vindicated, right? Even yes. if it was vindicated. Now, I, I would assume being on the other side of that, your armor's pretty thick, too, because I'm sure there's more than a few people that have told you what you're producing is garbage. Uh, oh, yeah. Everybody hates something, right? Um, yeah. We get a We get a ton of, like, negatives about everything I produce. And, you know, but in all honesty, if I'm happy making it, I don't care. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the extent of it. And people seem to think you have to kind of argue your value. And I think that's the error right there. It's like, you just move on. You just kind of go, okay, you know, you don't like it. That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to go draw it again. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they hate that. They, that's the yeah. worst thing to them. So. Yeah, it um, that's my, actually one of my favorite phrases. Um, and my wife has coined it the shipment. Okay. And yeah. uh, so someone says something to me and I say, okay. Yeah, they, they, they hate it. They hate yeah, they, it. they do. They hate it. And when my wife explains it to people, they say, you know, all my husband is doing is he's acknowledging that you spoke words. He's not agreeing with you. He's right. not disagreeing with you. He doesn't right. want to have this conversation. Right. All right. he wants to do is figure out how fast can we move on. Right. Um, totally. And I use totally. it professionally all the time, too. It worked. So, I, I, it's, it's, funny. A, it's a wonderful skill. I mean, it know, is. But, but I've also reached a point in my career where it's kind of hard to argue creative uh, accomplishment. I, I can literally go magic the gathering. Yeah, I did that. Uh, yeah. You know, what have you done? And they go, Oh, you know, so yeah. if, if people are going to argue with me, they better bring their a game. They better, <laughs> they better be able to sit down and draw better than me. If they're, 
bitching about it or write better than me. And, and if they do, fucking mazel tov. That's awesome. Yeah. Like, I love it when I see really talented people creating shit. Um, but, you know, the complainers, the people whose art is complaining, I have no time for them. I just kind of move on. Yeah, that's that's a smart way to handle it, my friend, a smart way to handle it. So, guys, we're going to take another break. When I get back from this break, I really want to dig into Delta Green. Um, I think it's very unique. Um, it's award winning. It is extremely popular and very well respected. And I want to find out why. So we'll be right back. Howdy, friends. Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So you heard us talk about Delta Green um, and Dennis, there's, there's people um, to, to kind of give you an idea, Dennis, um, the podcast um, and third floor war started focused on uh, a tabletop game called Malifaux, which is okay. a, uh, a miniatures game, you know, like Warhammer and stuff, but right. it's a smaller company. And we've, we've ex- expa- since expanded out to talk about other things. And I was an role player um, as a young man and always a tabletop lover and then came back to role playing. And unfortunately for my listeners, what I'm interested in is what I want to talk about, which is means that's what's going to happen here on the podcast. Um, but, um, I think I've drugged some of my listeners with me. I think there's people that either have never done role playing before and are starting to consume this long story short, there's people out there that are not familiar with Delta green. So can we, can we get an idea of, um, we know where it came from, but, but what is Delta green? What's the elevator pitch? Yeah. So, uh, Delta green is, uh, in 1928, um, the U S Marines were called into a small town called Innsmouth, Massachusetts and discovered much to their chagrin that it wasn't a cult of bootleggers. It was a bunch of creatures that existed and crossbred with men that lived at the bottom of the sea. What would happen in the U S federal government? If that actually happened, this is all based on an HP Lovecraft story called the shadow over Innsmouth. Right. We wanted to take that to the utmost level to go, okay, 1928, the U.S. government has in its possession 200 alien bodies and knows that these creatures live beneath Earth's oceans. What are the logical steps that occur from there? And Adam Scott Clancy, this amazing author who still writes for Delta Green, wrote this incredible convoluted real world history of P Division and all this other kind of crazy, you know, the Black Chamber and all these interactions that actually <laughs> happen. And um, it just, it was beautiful. It it just, uh, so Delta Green at its high level, you are agents um, in the Delta Green conspiracy. It's not even really an organization sometimes. um, And you are tapped to deal with unnatural elements that, you know, um, seep their way into the American, uh, 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 into American society. You're there to eliminate them. 
Um, and these eliminations, these attacks, these unnatural incursions have a terrible toll on the sanity of the people who are involved. Uh, and that toll is taken out on your family. It's taken out on your friends because all of this is secret. You have to take it all to the grave. There is no final solution where you can close the door and keep the monster out forever. They will get you. It's just a matter of time. That's Delta Green. And what's so cool about it is, first of all, you've got the you've got the HP Lovecraft premise, right? Yeah. Um, so, so the idea of the cosmic horror, the uh, the otherworldly horror, as opposed yeah. to the werewolf and the and the vampire type horror, you, you pull that, you sewn together actual history and yeah. worked Delta Green into actual history, which which is fantastic. As you as you're reading through the uh, the source books, and for those listening, if you never play Delta Green. The, the two books, the set, I got the nice set with the sleeve and everything. Yeah. It's, just, it's just, it's just gorgeous. I don't oh, know who nice. drew, I don't know who did the art, but it's pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> but I I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. And, and it's a great read. Like I said, even oh, if, I, if I never play it, it's, it's fantastic. And it, and it's that weaving together the stuff, but a couple things that really differentiate it from call of Cthulhu. Um, one is really the setting. Um, so you, it, it's set now. Um, yes. which, which is a really big deal because that's very rare. Now you've seen some compendiums, a couple of modules and stuff come out for call of Cthulhu that try to do that, but you, yeah. you're flat out saying that's where we are. This, this yeah. is what we are. Um, I, the explanation of why we do things, which can sometimes be a struggle in call of Cthulhu is solved. And you yes. guys solved it back when you were, were playing the game and killing yep. your characters, which I think is really, really neat. Um, <laughs> what is fascinating the most to me so far, and, and, and remember, Dennis, I haven't played yet, but as a yeah, GM, the part that really stuck out to me was what you closed with, which is the toll it takes on the players. Yes. Now, the concept of sanity is something that's been in Call of Cthulhu forever, right? Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, and, and let's be honest, that comes from Lovecraft. I mean, yeah. one of the huge themes in Lovecraft's um, books is the toll that this takes on the characters that, that, yeah. that are in his stories. But what I thought was really fascinating, um, and I'd like you to talk to me a little bit about it, is what happens between missions and, sure. and how you guys, when you guys decided that this was important and we're going to incorporate that into the game. Can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Shane Ivey, who's one of the, Del one of the members of the Delta Green Partnership, had this kind of great idea of, you know, what happens when people are put under stress at, at their jobs and when those jobs are life or death, when those jobs are, you know, I'm a SEAL team member, I'm a, I'm in the airborne, I'm, I'm an FBI agent. And the answer is you take those things out on your family. Yeah. That, that's the long and the short of it is you get home and you yell at your wife, and you know, you don't talk to your kid cause he's, he's turning into a jerk and you don't have time to. So we wanted to build uh, that into the game and that becomes the core of the game. Yeah. It's not, it's not the other way around. It's not this little thing you pepper on the side. It's why you're doing all this stuff. So when, you know, we've had examples, like the greatest in game example I can think of is we had an agent who secretly flew to Cincinnati on a mission and forgot to turn off his location services on his Facebook. And he said, Oh, you know, I'm going to be in town on a training mission and bing, you know, his wife sees he's in Cincinnati and he's, not answering his phone and, and it escalates over the weekend to divorce basically wow. he's cheating on me he's you know in the middle of this giant mission where these horrible things are going on all from this one stupid mistake and that became the game that yeah. became you know we gotta kill the guy but Cindy's gonna leave me and she's pregnant and you know and, and it, it was amazing to watch the game turn on this really clean pivot that that Shane's rules had so carefully kind of built in. Yeah. And 
And uh, that that was our goal um, from very early on in this this edition. So we're really happy it played out. Very, very interesting. And when this when that concept first hit, right, and mm-hmm. came out and and your understanding of the history of RPGs is I'm sure much better than mine. I, I, I've never seen anything like it before. So I would assume it was pre- considered pretty innovative at the time when it, when, when you put it out there. Uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting. The guy who, who helped us write a lot of these rules um, is kind of a genius in his own right uh, named Greg Stoltze. Uh, and Greg is the mechanic, is a mechanics guy who, who uh, you know, he does great games too, really cool fiction, but he really soars on these game mechanics. He's, a, a genius um yeah uh, the things in the game i think i think that proved very popular but i've seen other games that do similar things gotcha um just not quite exactly that way uh, most of the games that do similar things are greg's games so got it uh you know so how was it received um when people you know first started reading it and started messing with it what, what kind of what was the audience feedback oh it, it was amazing and 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 very very positive uh i think we're on our 12th any um it's amazing man for for the game um and and the the feedback has been just almost universal well we love this more books um which is kind of what you know what you want to hear it's such a uh a satisfying position to start creating new stuff from of like i just need to hit that level of quality and people will be happy with me um so so one of the big questions I was going to ask you, and I had it in my back pocket, and you kind of ruined it already. So oh, I'm going to ask sorry. it anyway. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I'm a little intimidated by as a GM um, about running my first Delta Green game is I'm intimidated by it being modern. Um, okay. I'm used to I'm used to my players not having the internet, not having right. cell phones, right. um, and my players will have that now. Now the story you just told with Facebook realizes right. that actually opens things up for me. It doesn't restrict me. No, no, I, you know, and, and there are some really nice examples in the Delta Green Handler's Guide about this. But, you know, whenever I hear people say, oh, well, they'll be able to take a picture of it or, you know, the monster or, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll upload it to YouTube. Uh, I'm like, and? Like, and, you know, um, and they're like, but that'll prove to the world that the Migo exists. I'm like, it will? Like, yeah. are you sure? Are you sure? There's a wonderful site called The Faking Hoaxer and you go there and, it, you know, it's it's video footage of the space shuttle you know, crashed in the middle of the Epcot center and it looks completely real. Is that, is that real? Yeah. Um, and they're like, well, how will the conspiracy control it? You, well, you go up as a user in YouTube and go, uh, Photoshop, LOL, boop, done. Um, but like researching stuff, um, the stuff I love to do as a handler is, you know, they'll research the seaside shanty town in Alaska. They'll look it up and it'll talk about, uh, you know, horrible fishmen. And they'll be like, oh, cool. It's deep ones. You know, let's go there. They go there and it's, it's, it's a star spawn of Cthulhu. You know, it's 130 feet tall. It's got tentacles, you know, <laughs> and, and they show up with, you know, FNFL rifles. Like we're going to shoot this thing. And they're on the beach screaming, running around. Oh, that's one 100 sand loss. Um, the information is poison. Yeah. Use it. You know, the phone is just another delivery method of putting that poison in the player's ear. Very interesting. Uh, and, and so many of our scenarios, uh, the last equation jumps to mind, is literally it's built. There's a, there's a single nine-digit code, and that is poison. If you know it, if you understand it, you're, you're in deep trouble. And it, that goes out on a phone. Like the center of the scenario is I write my Google group. Hey, check out this number I discovered. And they're all off murdering people within two weeks. Um, 
So, you know, think, think about it that way. Think about it as a vector to ruin their lives because that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. And it's what's neat about it is you've also added another layer to the challenge of 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 being a player, because um, not only do they have to deal with the horrors, not only do they have to then deal with being human beings who have to deal with these horrors. But I also love the fact that by 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 definition, Delta Green is also trying to suppress this and hide this, knowing the threats of that. And I imagine, again, having haven't haven't run a game yet, but I would imagine that it's, I can't just go to the town and eliminate the problem. I have to go to the town. I've got to eliminate the problem and make sure nobody believes that it even happened. Right. Oh, yeah. It's totally, you know, we have, we have a, a haunted house scenario where the agents finally, my agents finally resorted to burning the house to the ground. Yeah. And, and this house would do things like telephone out. Like it would call their wives. As I've, read, and I've say, read that. It's really good. Say, Come here. And I ended that scenario where they're at the scene, like kicking around the, the debris of the house and they hear a phone ringing in the debris. And they were like, you know what? F this. We're done. <laughs> like we're telling A-cell it's all fine. We took care of it. The house is gone. And uh, six, six, uh, I think six months later, there's a, there's a wooden frame on the site that uh, matches the house. Someone's building a house there. And they're like, the agents are just like, oh, God, this is bad. Oh, that's cool. Really fun. So, you know, building in that kind of, you can't escape it. You can't yep. defeat it. You can only put it off. That's, that's it. Yeah. That's very Lovecraftian, my friend. That's yeah. great. That's really, really great. Um, so the last little bit I want to talk about before, and um, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that, um, that you're on the show. We're going to talk about the role-playing industry um, sure. in general, but that's after the break. But before we, before we head there, um, you're a success story in a lot of ways in this industry. And I, do you have kernels of advice for people listening? So just recently I had a listener reach out to me. Um, he's got a homebrew thing for uh, the Genesis system that uh, okay. fantasy yeah. flight game puts out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he knows that I like the narrative dice. So he's like, you know, Hey Craig, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking about doing this with it and stuff like that. And um, the piece of advice I gave him, um, which is very close to what we've been talking about. as I said, the first thing you do is you got to make something, man. So, so you're thinking about, should I do Patreon? Should I do drive through RPG? And I said, I said, dude, you haven't made anything yet. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think it's great that you have an idea. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I love that your players love your idea, but you got to yeah. make something. And yeah. th- that means you got to start it. Mm-hmm. You got to develop it and then you got to finish it. I said, right. once that happens, let's talk, man. Then I sure. can give you a ton of advice on what, what's going to be the best avenue, but I can't tell you what you could do with this until you make something. So I'd yeah. be curious for you, um, when people approach you the same way, I'm sure you get it all the time. What is the, what is the most common advice that you get out there or the mistakes that you see keeping? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one, one, the highest level advice I can give you is that failure is not the enemy. Failure is the process. So we have unfortunately in North America and some of Europe raised several generations of people being terrified of failing. Yeah. Um, they're just, it's the scariest, most terrifying thing for people to do. Um, and, and you got to get that out of your system. If you're going to do anything in the creative arts professionally, what that means is you're going to get bad feedback. You're going to yeah. get feedback that this sucks. I hate it. It's your fault. Don't do this again. And if you can't just roll with that and learn something, if there's something to be learned right. from, from that, um, you're doomed. You, you will never create anything of any real import. You'll only kind of create what you think people want in, in this kind of dim hope of 
making everybody happy, which will never, ever happen, I assure you. <laughs> um, so that that's one level. The second level is people tend to think of the role-playing industry as any other publishing industry, and it has absolutely nothing to do with conventional book publishing. It is 100% not related in any way to putting things on bookshelves by Del Rey or anything like that. Right. Um, it, it is, in some ways, way more profitable for the creator, and in some ways, way more uh, tiny than any other industry. Um, you know, you can print three to 5,000 copies and that's, if you can sell through that, that's great. Um, uh, but I see people like I'm hiring a PR guy and I'm you know, <laughs> press, you know, and I'm just like, dude, you know, don't just make good stuff. Yeah. And people will talk about it. And then, but the other wonderful thing is all the stuff that I learned in the nineties is complete garbage now because we have these wonderful things like discord and, Roll 20. And these people play and advertise my game for me and they're awesome about it. And they're, they're humble and cool and they come and ask me questions and it's great. Um, So if you want advertisement, don't buy advertisement, get someone to play your game on roll 20, get someone to record an actual play podcast, right? It's done more for Delta green than anything else. Um, We're really lucky to have some really talented partners there um, from role playing public radio and those guys. So well, I mean, like I said at the very beginning of the show, Dennis, it was it was word of mouth that that got me turned on to you. Cool. And it, again, it was from people who I respect, people who nice. I, that I know what they're talking about. And you were the one thing consistent between all the people I was talking to. <laughs> so oh, cool. um, so there's a little you. there's a little smoke up your ass. How does that feel? <laughs> <laughs> I can use some more. You know, it's a little quiet out here. No, that's that's oh. great. It's, it's really, really neat. So, um, Dennis, we're going to take another break. When I get back from this sure. break, I want to talk more kind of where we were headed, which is I want to talk about the industry itself and kind of what your thoughts are on it. So we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Keith Suderman, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars. You'll never mistake me for a competitive player, but I really enjoy the analysis and the advice I get from Tabletop Talk. You should be a patron, too. Head on over to Patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars, or just click the link in the show notes below. What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month? Five dollars a month? Twenty dollars a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go buy our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. When we created our Patreon, we purposely did not create tiers. We wanted listeners that wanted to support us to be able to choose any level. But I do want to give a shout out to those patrons that uh, donate the most per month. So special thanks goes to Nick Westbrook, Marcus, Craig Chuba, Kevin Smith, Mike Schmidt, Cody Ravicki, Drawn X, Sergey, Carl Lee, Corwin Solez, Alan Brown, Ambrose Ingram, Stephen Morris, Sam Newman, and James Hahn. Because the amount of m- money that you support us with each month, we're able to put out this content on a regular basis. Thanks a ton. So it's kind of neat to hear, um, you know, how Dennis 
walked in, backed into the RPG industry um, in his own in his own sort of way. Um, but the reality is, and we learned that in the first um, segment, you know, he's been here the whole time. He's been a consumer of this. He's been a player the whole time. He's produced things um, over time. For for crying out loud, he's still playing with his Boy Scout friends. He's still playing D anD D. So. Um, where do you, where do you think the industry is right now? So if you take a step back and you look at in 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 the the history of tabletop role playing, where do you think we are right now? This this is without a doubt, like no doubt, the golden age of all role playing games. Like yeah, beyond any belief, it's bigger than I ever thought it could be. It's more financially successful and viable than I ever thought it could be, and it's easier for the average person to get into and create stuff than I ever thought it could be. So what do you think was the tender? So and it, I agree it exploded. Um, and I've tried to figure out like, like one day, like I couldn't tell anybody I liked D and D. And then the next <laughs> right. thing I was like, cool. He likes D and D. Like, right. what do you think? Where do you think that happened? Do you, can you, have you ever tried to narrow it down? It's, it's, it's pretty clear. It's actual play podcasts. It's interesting. It's, you know, video recordings of playing D and D other grind, you know, um, the, those who shall not be named the biggest, uh, video. We all know the Dungeons and Dragons podcast I'm talking about right yeah. now. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that really kind of gave birth to it. People started to see how fun they could be. Um, it, it's a very abstract thing to understand. So it requires a level of thought that most people are not very comfortable with, uh, for giving games. Mm-hmm. You know, here's this 280 page book, go read this and then we can play a game together. And the guy's like, you know, what? <laughs> uh, that's like 90% of people are just like, you know what? No, I'm just going to go play Madden, you know? Yep. Um, but seeing it, seeing it in action realizing there's not a lot to it. There's it's, it's an imagination game. It's, if you can follow these 20 rules, you're set and they'll teach you at the table. Right. That became a totally different thing. Um, so I think that really kind of gave birth to the, the big blow up, but Patreon is another huge, uh, Iron in the Fire, Kickstarter is another huge iron in the fire. Um, Kickstarter changed my life completely. Like, right. Uh, and Patreon, every month, I'm creating stuff and interacting with my fans, and they're helping me make better books now, and it's <laughs> amazingly cool. Uh, I just love it. Um, so those things together make it a viable industry. The biggest mistake I see right now is I'm just going to chunk something out and try and monetize it. I don't care about it. It's this is a book on cobalt armor. Right. I'm going to charge a dollar ninety nine for it and see what happens. And nothing no. happens. Right. And it's just because you don't love it. You don't. It's not you're not living and dying for the cobalt armor. Some people do. And and you see, you know, they'll go like, why did X get noticed? And it's almost always you look at X and you're like, this has soul. This. Yep. You can you can understand why people want to buy X. Um well, and as a yeah. consumer, it doesn't take much, right, to, yeah. to to see that because, you know, you, you buy, I bought several things for $1.99 on DriveThruRPG, but right. you, I very quickly have a very limited number of artists now and, and right. creators that I go to. Um, right. and, and it doesn't take long to figure that out. So that no. makes a ton of sense to me. Trending wise, what do you see happening now? So that's where we are now. That's where we mm-hmm. were, you know, five years ago when nobody you know, talked about role playing. Right. Do, you, do you get a sense of where we're headed? Well, the previous boom, so the, the, the D20, you know, open game license boom of the 2000s uh, reached a peak and then collapsed. And the reason right. that, peak, that peak was achieved was the three-tier distributor system. For those who don't understand that at home, it's basically I make a book, 
I sell it to a distributor at a markdown. He sells it to a shop at a markdown. I eventually get some money back, but it's a fraction of the total cost. And I get paid three months, six months, sometimes never. Yeah. Uh, so that existed for all these roll, these D20 products and too many D20 products came out and the whole system kind of collapsed. We exist now in a place beyond three tier distribution. And in fact, I prefer it when I sell you my Delta Green book myself. Yep. That's better for me. That's better yep. for everybody involved. Um, and that's really possible because the internet has become so robust at connecting fans with the, the, the people, you know, uh, the people who create the art they want. There's a direct connection. There's no third party wait for my publisher. So that direct connection is the future. Yeah. Um, is going to be me, my fans interacting directly. Uh, and the money changing hands directly between us, not some weird convoluted scheme. Yeah. And, and what the problems that that multi-tiered system used to solve was logistical problems. And yes. to your point, they don't exist anymore, right? Yeah, they're, they're gone. No, they're gone. It's been automated in its own way. Um, mm-hmm. And it allows you as a creator to directly connect with that. Um, is there anything that um, you find concerning about um, the direction of the industry? I, I think my biggest my biggest concern is is not really a, a it's not a, an existential concern. It's more of a generic concern. It's I see a lot of people jumping in the pool, um, and and they're just they're not trying. They, yeah. they probably have great art in them, but they're not really kind of giving it their all. And and you can you know the invariably these people release one or two products. And then go on Twitter and say, D&D killed my game or nobody wants to play my game because of D&D or something else. And, and the truth is, like, there are tons of games that are not D&D that do great. Yours isn't one of them because you yeah. don't really give a crap and you just want to kind of make some money on the side. And you can't I, I really recommend against entering the market that way. You have to really love what you're doing. Yeah, that makes that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it. um. And it's one of those things where, you know, even if your heart was in it, doesn't mean it was going to, it's a guarantee to be a success. Right. Right? You can right. be passionate as hell and still put out garbage. Oh, um, yeah, to- totally. I mean, that's a really super important point. Um, yeah. That, that failure is always an option. Failure yeah. can happen to anybody, including me and anybody. Like, so there's no magic, like, oh, I'm skating down the path where I never fail. I fall on my face all the time. Yeah. Um, but that's just part of it. Yeah. And it's really neat. Um, and again, it's been kind of neat for me, Dennis, because I feel like uh, Rip Van Winkle, right? I, I grew up on Redbox D&D and Gamma Worlds and all of those conversations right. that we were having finished off with like GURPS. And then I went to sleep. I didn't play role playing for like 20 years and then woke up a year ago. Like, and I was like, holy crap. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah it's amazing. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I started making through the podcast. I've made connections with people and, uh, one of the things, the reason I found you is I was asking some people that are, um, that are in the industry and content creators. And I said, look, I want to run a horror game. That's what I used to run mm-hmm. with GURPS. I love horror. Um, I, you know, I don't really feel like doing call of Cthulhu, um, for several different reasons, but, um, and they, they two things came up. They said Delta green and mothership. And right. they kind of told me the difference between the two. But the mm-hmm. first thing that I figured out about both of them is I started researching them is like, look how close it was. Like these were just people making stuff that they love. Right. And, right. and then to get, and there's a huge difference between you and mothership. Right. But, right. but, but the, but your point about the soul, like when right. I consumed uh, both of these products, I'm like, 
Like these people give a shit. Like they they really love what they're doing. And and you could and it was nice to be able to reach out to the people that are making the thing and say, hey, I want to buy this from you. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that's great. And, and then the avenues of all that. So that's that's very, very cool. So guys, um, we're gonna take one more break. We're gonna get back from this break. Um, some of you um may know Dennis, and this might be your first time coming across it, but one of the things that made me really excited about having Dennis on, and you probably have figured it out at this point, is Dennis has opinions. Um, if you <laughs> follow Dennis on Twitter, um staying staying on top of Dennis's Twitter feed is is a part-time job for me at this point. Um but what I want to do is I want to talk to um Dennis about some of the uh kind of hot topics that are happening in the industry. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends, Greg here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com. That's with one M. Or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R-F-R-I-E-N-D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So much like a lot of things, um, we're seeing um, culture really kind of clashing um, inside of the role playing game industry. And, um, And again, as somebody who slept and came back, I kind of. A year ago is when I jumped into it and you know the house was already on fire in some ways. Right. Um, and, and, and what we're going to, the things I want to talk to you about, Dennis, aren't isolated to role playing, but we're going to talk about it in the sense of role playing. And really sure. the first, the first thing that I find very, very interesting and have very strong opinions on, but everybody who listens to this is tired of hearing me talk about my opinions is the a concept of representation in gaming. So that phrase mm-hmm. is put out there all the time. That representation is important. Um, I'd first like to understand from your perspective, one, what, what that phrase means to you. Well, um, we're lucky uh, in so much that Delta Green is set in the modern world. Uh, the, the modern world offers, you know, the same representation that our modern world offers, you know, uh, being a, a uh, American Indian FBI agent or black, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not a strange or outray concept. It's something that has right. occurred and is easy to conceive of. Um, and my, you know, my thinking is this, anybody who wants to play these games should be able to play these games. Um, anybody who looks at these games and wants to see a mirror of themselves should, uh, the larger the market of that game should see some representation of their kind uh, of people until, you know, until we cover those bases. Um, I think it's kind of up, you know, it, it's an up in the air question and people get really upset about it. But the truth is um, there's no reason to exclude people from gaming. And that I see that a lot. I see a lot of exclusionary thought. I see OSR fighting against the world. Yeah. I see, um, people swearing up and down that, um, you know, so-and-so is not a real fan of X because they asked for Y. 
I saw this horrible, horrible thing about um, someone wrote up rules for like uh, using a, a wheelchair in D and D. I was going to talk to you about that. Yeah, and they went, they went off. You know, these these horrible people went off on a rant, and I'm like, dude, if the person wants to play a person in a wheelchair in D and D. You know, you're playing a game where, you know, you, you, you pull a pearl out of a slotty head and you control, you know, like a wheelchair is not really that out there for D&D. Um, <laughs> is that the most fantastical thought that we're talking <laughs> yeah. about D&D yeah. is somebody so, in a wheelchair? Yeah. So, you know, um, overall, I think a lot of this stuff uh, in both gaming and the real world becomes a, a, a an inflection point for people to just kind of spout boorish stupid content and i grew up in a a wonderful place uh new york city and uh an absurdly integrative culture where everybody's just kind of like you know what food does your family make was the predominant social (laughs) comment are you you're italian right like haitian food are we going to get haitian foods um so i i run my tables that way it's just kind of everybody plays uh nobody gets restricted and um, what I want to see in Delta Green is, you know, the world. Okay. Um, that's kind of how I feel. Is there ever a conscious effort on your part as the person who you know, controls this IP and controls this content of, of do, you just, do you guys have the conversation in the office where you go, you know what? Um, we, we really need to think more about this or we um, consciously or subconsciously we're making this statement. Um, I mean, how, how socially conscious um, are you as a creator or how often is that part of the process or is it just who you are and it takes care of it? No. Um, so I can give two really pretty strong examples. Um, I, I created a game called Godlike. I don't know if you're familiar with that game. So Godlike in, in 2001, was, um, I think it won the Origins War. I don't remember. Um, it's, it's basically a short pitch is Saving Private Ryan meets X-Men. It's you're, you're superhumans in World War II. You can literally bend reality to your will, but you can be shot and, and die just like a normal schmo. Um, and in that book, I wrote... Uh, an intro that literally said, so you want to play a character in the SS? You're an awful human being. And here's why. Uh, And wrote, you know, wrote several paragraphs of how you were a terrible person. If you think playing an SS character is funny or fun or it's not. And here's why. And if you still think so, please F off and don't buy my work. Thank you. And that was 2001. And then in Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. So then, then in, um, in, in Delta Green itself, you know, um, Lovecraft was a monstrous racist. He's a horrible person. Um, and I take solace in this by thinking he never lived to see a success. He never really succeeded from anything he created. He, you know, is a horrible, bitter prig of a man who yeah. got eaten, eaten up inside. Um, and what we want to do, what we do with his works is we separate humanity, that being everybody on Earth, from the monsters and the monsters are, you know, so when we talk about the Chocho people or anything, they're not people, right? They're, they're horrific infected things from beyond space time that take the shape of a man sometimes, but they'll kill you and drag you through these horrible voids. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, 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 and you know, there's a lot of gray material where you end up with like deep ones, like seaside. What, What I love about that is it plays on, the, you know, the classic tropes of racism, it's they're horrible New England white people who are fishmen. Yeah. 
So, so we get to do the worst of all possible worlds and kind of rub their noses in it. Um, yeah. But having said all that, you know, taking a conscious look at all this and trying to understand what what the message is of our books. And the message is this. It's humanity alone in the dark. And that's all of humanity. Um, and the dark is winning. Yeah. Like we are going to be eaten. So we only have each other. And that's the kind of gist of Delta Green. Um, so I really like, that's the only real conscious thought there is what is, what is the end message? Um, and we are nihilistic beyond all belief. Like Delta Green, the, just the opening chapter of the Handler's Guide will tell you everything you need to know there. Uh, it's to get a open. good read. Yeah. <laughs> it, it opens with like, you are the apocalypse, I think. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of where we're at. But as far as like D&D and other things like that go, I have deep respect for them attempting to kind of widen the audience to show more people more interesting reflections of themselves in larger works. And a lot of those guys are really good friends of mine. Ray Winninger, who runs D&D now. I used to work with him at Hairbrand Schemes. John Tynes runs the video game division, who co-wrote Delta Green. Um, And they really make a conscious effort to kind of make things more inclusive and cool for everybody, which is great. There's always going to be a negative small group of people who bitch about it, but um, expecting those people to ever go away is a foolish thing. Yeah. They're a known quantity at this point. Yeah. 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 Um, So it's interesting because, you know, part of the challenge um, is uh, something that you touched on, which is, um, some of the seeds of what we do in role playing. So whether it be Lovecraft, whether it be Tolkien, um, you know, the Tolkien wasn't really kind of that nice of a guy either. He had, yeah. he had his own problems. Right. Um, so, and it, you know, and we built stuff off of that. Um, and you know, to your point though, that doesn't mean we can't separate the art from the artist. That doesn't mean we can't say, you know what, there's some good shit here and let's, let's, let's put it where, where it's in a better place. Right. And let's make it ours. Um, where do you, so one of the things, the arguments you hear, um, lately, um, discussions, I should say, not arguments, um, have to deal with the roots and this gets to Tolkien, the roots of the concept of species and race and, Of evil races like the orcs and you know in some ways you're you, you deal with it too with with yeah. your, the people that we talked that we talked about right, right. the deep um, ones and the yeah yeah are, are people people being oversensitive when they say look there's no such thing as an evil race we need to get that the hell out of D D, or do they or do they have a point or you know like where do you fall in that discussion well um like i i can tell you that my D games are far more interesting now that the players want to negotiate with goblins or talk with orcs um not always just kill them you know uh the way i pitch most of these things is they are not human um either terribly monstrous like demons from another world or something like that when i deal with orcs orcs are like elves they're just kind of their own you know group of people who kind of do their own stuff in the world um, and that often conflicts with other races, but right. humans are, humans are like that too. Um, they come in and steal land. And so usually <laughs> when I like in the, or the, the latest D stuff I've been doing, the orcs are pitched as, um, uh, being disenfranchised of their lands by humans spreading into the area. Um, and you know, it, this has led the players to eventually come around to the fact that like, we're the assholes, right? we're, we're, the, we're the shitty people. <laughs> we're the, we're the, 
I remember when they burned that town down. That yeah. that was my dad, you know, like so so that leads to interesting questions at the table. Um, but for games like games set in the real world, Godlike is a great example. World War II, Godlike. I literally, you know, there's an entire section where it's like, I'm not hiding any of the real world repercussions of any of this shit. Like, yeah, this is horrible. They interred Japanese Americans, they stripped them of rights, they forced, you know, uh people into camps, they, you know. And, and these are all horrible choices, but you can bet if one of them could fly, they would be utilized. So what is, if you want to play that in this game, the interesting questions, the real questions are, how do you, you know, how do you navigate a world that is so turned against you when you have it? Um, and this led to really great games and really great sessions where uh, Chris uh, Spivey uh, wrote a, uh, about the first uh, uh, all black um, American tank unit mm-hmm. uh, for Godlike as a kind of scenario, and then dealing with that. And it's all historically accurate. And and I just love I love exploring social issues uh, in gaming that were real that we can look back on now with a little bit of a step up. If not, we're not we're not clear of any of these things. No, <laughs> we're, we're you know we're, we're, we're we've moved a bit away from the 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 horrors of the 1940s. Um, some might say it's all coming back. <laughs> but let's hope not. Um, but, but what I love about it is, is exploring it and putting it up front and, and having absolute no's. So the, the SS, the Nazis, for me and Godlike, it was super important. Yeah. You know, no, these are things you, these are guys you kill. These are places yeah. you blow up. These are not characters you play. It's not fun to invade Belgium. It's, you know, so. Of drawing lines and understanding limits is super important at the table. Um, and a lot of people get offended that that's even a concept because they just want to kind of flail all over the table. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very funny to me, Dennis, because um, by no means was 20 year old Craig and an enlightened person. I was an idiot, yeah. right? Like most 20 year olds are. Yeah. But when I was running games back then, I was running all fantasy games. Uh, it was a fantasy or horror and it was using GURPS. Um, instinctively, I, didn't deal with evil races, right? Instinctively, right. I was doing what you're talking about for one single reason, which you already said, which is far more interesting. It's yeah, far yeah. more interesting. And I think that alone is the only argument that you need. Um, yeah. Going back to um, our friend making uh, a wheelchair for D&D. Yeah. That's, that's interesting, right? I thought it was awesome. And, yeah. And they're like, well, what about stairs and stuff? Well, yeah. shit, that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, how does this yeah. character deal with stairs? Yeah. How does this character deal with the tower? Right. Yeah. That's not a reason not to have it. That's, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, totally. You know, it's, and and that's what role-playing is. Um, uh, I had Anthony Boyd on the show. And one of the things that Anthony Boyd said, he tried to, I asked him to distill down role-play and he goes, "It, it is an opportunity for people to be in situations where they have to make choices that they'll never have to make in real life. Yeah. And, and see what happens. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the more interesting those choices are, the more engaging the game is and that people that love role playing. That's what we do. That's what we love yeah. doing. Um, yeah. So it makes it very, very, very interesting. Before I launch into this, do we want to talk about the Wizards of the Coast Dragonlance thing or would you prefer not to? I don't care. You can. Sure. Okay. All right. Um, the last little thing I wanted to just bring up, because I thought it was interesting, especially in the context of getting to know you better, uh, Dennis, is um, recently there was a lawsuit um, where the uh, writers of Dragonlance um, are now suing Wizards of the Coast. And for those listening to give a little bit of history, um, uh, if, if, I don't know. Is it possible you don't know what the Dragonlance books are? I guess it's possible. <laughs> um, they're they're, they're unbelievable pl- uh, plurific. 
prolific, unbelievable prolific um, series of books that in many ways defined fantasy at the time. Um, and uh, they were tied close with D&D. Uh, D&D had settings based off of Dragonlance. And then they went dormant. Um, and then there was a buzz and talk because there was talk that Dragonlance books were going to be coming out again. And people were really excited because it looked like that there was going to be uh, some more Dragonlance material for Wizards. Um, Wizards terminated and said, no, we're not doing this. Um, and now they're suing um, Wizards of the Coast. Um, I'm hearing all kinds of different things about what happened there. Do you have any insights or thoughts or uh, understanding of it? Well, I, I, you know, what I'll say first is I have no direct knowledge of the case or, or okay. you know, anything involved inside of the case. Um, so I don't, you know, I know uh, Weiss and Hickman. I've met them socially. Um, I know a lot of the Wizards people, but I've, I've never seen the contract or anything they had worked out. Right. Um, but I, I will say several things. Um, I have been under many Hasbro contracts. Uh, so I, I have signed many, many contracts for Hasbro. These contracts uh, are expansive and complete. They, they do not leave open ends. They are not like, maybe next Wednesday we'll finish this. It's like, if you don't finish it by Wednesday, here are the repercussions and these seven things will happen. Now, the reason that I find this also humorous, uh, and I do find this whole lawsuit kind of silly and, and goofy in a very embarrassing way, because I like Weiss and Hickman. Sure. Um, it, it, it's, it's that Hasbro. Um, so when you, when you picture Hasbro, you think, Oh, cute toy company. Hasbro is a, a corporate behemoth beyond all belief. I, when I visited Rhode Island years and years ago to Hasbro headquarters, it's like, Oh, they're in that building, you know? And there's like the wizards is this relatively tiny thing compared to Hasbro. So this is important. Uh, their legal department is a building. Right. You know? um, so the idea that there was just this magical hole in this contract where it was like, <laughs> it, it's just one, that's just stupidly silly. I can't imagine a situation where that might've happened. Right. Uh, then second, it, it, even if that wasn't the case, um, this was all work for hire in the 1980s by Weiss and Nick. They own yeah. nothing. They, they work for, uh, they work for TSR. They sign contracts to that account. TSR owns all of it. Wizards owned all of it by buying it. Um, so, you know, I've described the lawsuit. If you read the complaint, it's deeply funny uh, because it's very, they literally call themselves rock stars and other things like that. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. Um, I described it as the Uncle Rico of lawsuits. It is, you know, watch me throw this football over that mountain, um, you know, Napoleon Dynamite. Um, so, the only outcome of this that I can really predict is we won't be seeing Dragonlance anytime soon. Yeah. Um, they are almost certainly not going to get anything from it. They'll get a, a, a severance payment most likely of just kind of like, here's your money, go away. Go away. And, yeah. and, and if they want to go to court, they're going to have a really bad time. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to be years of a really bad time. So, so there's, there's people, Dennis, that are connecting Hasbro terminating the contract with uh, the desire for Wizards to uh, kind of redefine how they consider fantasy, right? So it ties into what we've been talking about to kind of this this inclusion and things like that. And there's, and I have, again, I have no knowledge of this either, but, you know, there's people that are supposing that Dragonlance is, is too seated in the old and Wizards wants to go to the new. And that's why they ended it. Have you gotten any sense of why Hasbro said we don't want this? No, no, no idea. I, I don't, you know, I don't have any insight into any of that. You know, yeah. if, if I had to guess, um, 
uh, you know, uh, se- several things. Sensibilities and senses shift over decades, and Weiss and Hickman have not really been a thing since the mid nineties, probably. It's been a while. Uh, yeah. Um, and you know, then there's a whole other level of weirdness there, but, um, you know, I'll, ba- <laughs> I'll basically say, uh, it, it is wizard's prerogative to yeah. maneuver and make decisions for D and D like they, you don't, just because you're Weiss and Hickman doing work for hire in the 1980s and the 1990s does not give you a vote. Yeah. Um, and, and that is, that's just an important truth of work for hire. It's why I don't work for hire. Now I want to have all the votes, but when you make that choice, it really feels to me, they signed away their golden goose and now they're trying to kind of sue to get it back. And it's, it's really sad and silly. And and I feel bad for them. I think they're surrounded by people who give them bad information. Yeah. Like, have a shot. You could do this. And they just, it's not going to happen. Well, and I think kind of what you're hinting at, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it's not a matter of whether you think it's good or bad or right or wrong. Yeah. It's just the reality of the situation. Right. That, right. That's, that's, what, that's what this work for hire is. That's what the contracts are. And right. um, there's people that work at Hasbro that make a living at making sure that those contracts are written well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and having signed so many Hasbro contracts for magic yeah. and other things, I, you know, and this is, you know, imagine this is for a magic card, like, and it's, you know, it's a huge <laughs> freaking contract. Um, I can only imagine what a book contract might look yeah. like or, or, you know, it, it's certainly not going to be like, you own everything and we own nothing. You can make all the decisions you want. We'll pay you a billion dollars. Like that's, <laughs> it's just never going to happen. Um, so, so when I look at this situation, I just kind of think they, they got, they got into, uh, they, they got into a, a peak of anger. They spoke to somebody who gave them some really bad advice who sensed maybe they could get some cool legal fees out of them. And it's off to the races and every, they were hoping people would gather tents and torches around them and kind of march on wizards. And it's really not, not happened. Um, no. and it's, it's mostly because, you know, wizards isn't confronting them. Wizards is yeah. just kind of like, oh, this is cool. We'll pay you and let's move on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. So Dennis, um, for those that are listening, um, what is the, what is the best way for them to start exploring your world? Um, so ah. what is your advice for somebody who's, we've now piqued their interest. They now sure. want to find out more about Delta green. Um, what is your recommended path for somebody listening right now? Okay. So we have a wonderful free product, which is full color, um, called Delta green need to know, which is available on RPG now. You can go there, literally download it right now. It has six characters. It's got a full scenario. It's got all the rules. Everything you need to play is in there. If you want to run a session, you can run a session tomorrow. Don't need any other books. And that will be enough to show you how this game operates, what it's about. Um, From there, I would recommend the Agent's Handbook. Um, If you think of the Agent's Handbook as the, the Delta Creed equivalent of the Player's Handbook, it's very much like that. Everything you need to build agents, um, backgrounds, weapons, that kind of stuff, agencies, skills, it's all in there. If you want to run Delta Green on a bigger scale, then you'll want something called the Handler's Guide. And the Handler is the DM of Delta Green, the GM. Uh, and this is the entire history of the world of Delta Green, all the monsters, all the books, all the, and that's a much bigger uh, investment of time. So start with Need to Know, which is short and sweet to the point. Uh, move on to the Agent's Handbook. And if you're still interested, go up to the Handler's Guide. Would be my right. That's fantastic. Dennis, I can't thank you enough, man. I appreciate you making the time to hang out with us. 
Oh, no problem, Craig. Anytime. You, uh, have you tried to talk to my partner, Shane Ivey? He'd love to talk to you. I will. I will make that happen. <laughs> no, cool. uh, I will. Uh, I'll bug you offline and uh, cool. we'll, yeah, we'll no put problem. that together. I, I appreciate it. Now, uh, for those of you that are listening that stuck around to the end, I appreciate it. Take care. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch so you don't miss uh, the avalanche of content we create. Links are in the show notes. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. There you'll also find the latest information for the U.S. Faux Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next U.S. Faux Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. Um, this will probably end up being short, shorter than I thought at first, Dennis, just because I th- we've kind of talked about some of it. Um, cool. Yeah, you can ask anything you like if you have extra okay. questions or anything. I'm, okay. I'm in no rush. That was going to be my next question is, how are you doing on time? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, if I'm done by eight, I'm fine. All right. Beautiful. All right. We'll definitely be done by eight. That was perfect, man. Cool. Great. Oh, the strategist. Look at you. <laughs> oh, I love that store. I do. Last... Oh, it's just so good. Such I'm a great remember, store. I remember when I... Had to have been my early twenties, right? When I first went there, and I just remember, just I, I couldn't believe it because it was just yeah. like it was like. And if I remember correctly, I mean, I just remember stacks and, yeah. and four deep, and you'd move three books and find a fourth book, and it's yeah, just yeah. I, I got a copy of uh, Nighthawks, the Star Frontiers box set. It's <laughs> uh, crazy. In, in, in nineteen ninety nine, and when I went up to the front, Len, the guy who works there, I was like, "How, how much for this?" Like it was buried in a pile. And he was like, what does it say on the back? And it was like twelve ninety nine or something from 1983. And he was like, it's $12.99. <laughs> Jesus, that's <laughs> amazing. All complete. It was sealed. It was, oh, it was amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. That's yeah, incredible. I love that story. All right. All right, I'll bring us back. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over, and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, might as well run over to Patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, too, while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care. So I just found out that uh, somebody stole my password from Microsoft Office and locked me out. And I'm telling you right now, they are going to pay. You have my word.
Get it? <laughs>